This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, there is a little bit of swearing in this episode. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. We have agreed uh, today that uh, states and territories will end their respective mandatory isolation requirements on the 14th of October. Last Friday, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced that Australia is ending COVID-19 isolation and pandemic leave payments, sort of. The pandemic leave disaster payments will end at that time as well, with the exception of uh, people in high-risk settings uh, which uh, need to be uh, given particular support. So aged care, health care, the measures, uh, disability care, uh, the areas that have been previously identified. For some, this announcement came with a lot of emotions. Am I allowed to swear? (laughs) Because it was... Fuck me dead, they want to kill us. It also came with a lot of questions, like what does the end of isolation actually mean for our daily lives and for our path out of this pandemic? Today, we speak to an epidemiologist about the science of it all and an immunocompromised person about what they're doing to survive until the pandemic is over. It's Thursday, the 6th of October. Just to start with, can you introduce yourself, your name and your your role and experience? Catherine Bennett, Alfred Deakin Professor at Deakin University. I'm the Chair in Epidemiology and I've spent well over 20 years working in infectious disease epidemiology, including outbreaks and community transmission of infectious diseases, including MRSA and the superbugs. And obviously the last three years we've been very focused on covid The Albanese government has announced an end to mandatory isolation for people who test positive for COVID-19, except for people in certain high-risk settings. What's your first response to this change? Probably not surprised. Um, We took a step earlier on, over a month ago now, with with shortening the period for uh, people who don't have symptoms. We still have protections in place even with this change around high-risk workplaces, Um, so particularly with a focus on protecting vulnerable people. And I think for some, there's an overstatement of how effective isolation is now, particularly in the context of our testing patterns that are happening. Can you break that down a little? I mean, why are our testing and isolation systems not as effective as they once were? Testing changes. Less people test. um, They don't have a, a signal to test because they're not part of outbreak investigations anymore. And if you're asymptomatic, you don't have a a signal to test. So you might, if someone in the family knows they have COVID or your household, then others might test. But we um, we know estimates from um, health departments have been somewhere like between a third and 50% of people probably, even if they get a positive rat test, don't report it. We know rat tests give you false negatives. And so add all these things together and over time, we're, we're capturing less of the infections out in the population. So isolation is linked to testing. You have to test to know that you are a case in order to isolate. And most people who isolate have been infectious before they start isolating as well. So it's always been a kind of a leaky bucket. <laughs> and now it, the leaks become more so because 
people don't even know to test. And the higher the proportion of people with no or incredibly mild symptoms, um, the less likely they are to test. So we're, we're picking up a very small proportion of infections. Right. So the role of isolation as an effective public health measure may not be as important as it once was. What are some of the other things that the government would have been looking at in order to make this decision? The other thing that's happened over time is that the disease pattern changes. So we're seeing a lot of infections, but less people with COVID the disease now because of their um, age pattern. You know, the people still most dominant in the infection groups are the younger adults and they are the people who tended to have milder symptoms anyway, but now with hybrid immunity in Australia, very high vaccination rates. And um, many people now, more than 50%, particularly those younger adults who've had an infection as well as their vaccination, some of those more than one infection, they're now you know, experiencing on average less symptoms, less likely to have severe disease. You know, That's clear. And I think with our aged care facility outbreaks dropping, the number of uh, residents impacted in aged care. That's one of our sentinel sites to understand infection in the community. Those numbers have come right down and that's really reassuring and that will also make a big difference in terms of the number of people seriously unwell from COVID and the number of deaths we see as well. How does Australia compare to other countries like the UK and the US in terms of public health measures? Are we early in making this decision? There's a few countries that still have it in place, but probably more in name than in actuality. If you look at, as I said earlier, this strong link you have to have between testing and isolation and then some sort of monitoring of isolation. So we've seen countries do it a bit differently. Places like the UK famously had stopped testing and then stopped isolation altogether um, quite a few months back now. So it's quite quite interesting when you compare how they travelled through the recent Omicron outbreaks compared to other countries that still have, you know, some measures in place. And in BA1, for example, the first big Omicron wave, France, which still does have isolation in place, they had a, a wave of around, with, with a death rate of about five people per million. Um, by the second big wave of BA5, that had dropped to to just around two. But the UK was was lower than them in the first wave and were still sitting just around two, um, just over two for their second wave. So they don't look that different in terms of the impacts of the population, whether they've got, you know, these even partial measures in place still or they've dropped them completely. So other countries have ended isolation without deaths from COVID-19 skyrocketing necessarily. Do you think the same will happen in Australia? I don't think it's going to cause a massive change. I think some people have have reacted thinking we'll see a big surge. I don't expect that to happen. But our case numbers might go up anyway because we're also seeing a rise in infections with these new variants overseas. So it'll be watched closely if the situation changes. The other message that came through was this is the decision for now. If it needs to change, it will. We can't just look at isolation by itself. And we need to look at all of those measures and the protection we have, as well as other protections. Important that we keep an option uh, for a change to these settings in the future. Last month, the World Health Organization Director General said that the end of the pandemic is in sight. And he kind of cited the fact that weekly deaths from the virus around the world were at the lowest level since March 2020. Last week, the number of weekly reported deaths from COVID-19 was the lowest since March 2020. We have never been in a better position 
to end the pandemic. We're not there yet, but the end is in sight. When can we confidently say that the pandemic is over? What, what are the signs of that? Once we start to see, while well, we still have waves, that it, it's not stressing health systems, that you don't have to shut international borders, um, all of those things might then say, all right, this has reached a point where we're adjusting to it. People say living with a virus as if it's somehow playing it down. It's not. It's actually how do you live with a new pathogen? And that's what we're all working through globally. But there's still global efforts that have to be put in place, including vaccination. Even vaccination after an infection um, shows some positive association in helping to protect against long COVID. So there's a lot that we still need to do in a cooperative way globally. It is still going to be with us and the, and the virus has changed a little over this time. It's more infectious, if anything. But it's now saying we've tried to transition as safely as we could to a level of immunity in the population that means that this can be managed as an endemic disease. And, you know, once you're three years in, it's unless something really shifts again and therefore you have a pandemic strain, we will be naturally coming out of this pandemic declaration period. I know this might be impossible to answer, but how far along that path are we then? I mean, if we're not at the end of the pandemic, are we nearing the end? Yeah, I describe this as something that um, you'll, you'll see it in the rear vision mirror. We'll say, actually, things have been pretty predictable. So early in our new year, I expect if we do see a BA 4.6 or whichever the next wave is, if it looks a lot like BA5 in that it's not putting a lot of people in hospital, it's not really changing the patterns, then I think that's when the World Health Organisation would probably end the declaration of pandemic and that might happen by the end of the year. If this wave plays out differently and we've still got more to, to learn about this awful virus that we've got to manage, then that might delay that decision. The end of isolation will still come with some risk for people who are immunocompromised and various people with chronic illnesses. What can they do in this time? For those groups, it's also where the antivirals are really important. And again, latest data out talking about the effectiveness of antivirals, particularly with the Omicron strains now, the latest ones, is that, you know, getting that further reduction. And if you haven't had good protection from vaccination, even if you are vaccinated, um, they are reducing that risk of severe illness by 90%. You know, that's, in, that's substantial. And, we, and so knowing that you're potentially a candidate, sorting that out all out in advance of having an infection, all of those things are really quite critical. So you've got a treatment path sorted out. And if we can do that and protect people, not even from, you know, serious illness, it's actually, they might not even have to go to hospital. They might have a very mild illness if they can get these antivirals early. Next, surviving the end of the pandemic as an immunocompromised person. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. 
every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Good morning, Ashley. How are you going? I'm great. How are you? Great. What's been happening? You're not going to believe this. As soon as like 10.40 hit, our gardener showed up and he just started whippersnipping and I was like, no, please, for the love of Jesus, not now. (laughs) My name is Ashley Ray. I'm an independent support coordinator and I'm also a justice and disability rights activist and I'm based in Melbourne, Victoria. Last week, the government announced that mandatory isolation measures and disaster payments for most workers are ending. What was your first thought when you heard that news? Despair, because I think people with disabilities and people with chronic illnesses have been essentially left for dead through this entire pandemic. They've been ignored. They've been um, told that they should die so that others can live. There's been confusion about who covers the costs of PPE and where you can actually source PPE. Um, A lot of people with disabilities have gone without carers because their carers get sick. They work with multiple people, um, multiple people. One of them gets sick. You've got to isolate until, you know, that illness passes And in the meantime, everyone that that person cares for goes without care. And for some people, that means there's no one there to give them a shower. There's no one there to help them get dressed or go to the toilet. Ashley lives with a disability. She's vision impaired and she's also immunocompromised as a result of a chronic illness. I have uh, type 2 diabetes and a visual impairment and my immune system is a bit cooked from the diabetes. Um, So my immune system doesn't really handle being sick very well. Illnesses that usually people can get over in a week to two weeks, like a cold, flatten me for close to a month. It takes um, some more intense medical supervision. Uh, Sometimes it means a visit to the hospital, although we try to avoid that as much as possible. Mm. So it does happen a couple of times a year at least. Ashley's husband also has a respiratory condition. All this means that getting sick with COVID-19 would be really risky for both her and her partner. That means he would have to go to hospital just to be monitored to make sure that nothing complicates that. Like, So it gets complicated for him, but it also gets very complicated for me, again, because I'm diabetic and I'm insulin dependent and I also have other medications. It's really serious for me. But it wasn't until earlier this year that Ashley realised just how high this risk is for her. At the beginning of this year, we thought that I had COVID because I was very seriously ill and I couldn't breathe. And we had the ambulance come to our home and they said, look, we think you do have COVID, but you know, um, if we take you to the hospital, you are definitely going to catch COVID and you're probably not going to survive it. Wow. And that was really scary. It's really scary being told that in the moment when you also can't breathe very well. (laughs) That was really, really terrifying. We had to stay home. We kind of went with the logic that if it was COVID, then as scary as it was going to be, my chances were definitely going to be better at home than in the hospital. In the end, Ashley found out she didn't have COVID. It was pneumonia. But this moment had a big impact on her. 
as borders opened and other public health restrictions peeled back, she had to make some tough decisions about what is safe for her. It was really scary. We watched the numbers a lot and I had lots of discussions with my husband about uh, my husband works with kids and so that's a big risk factor for us. So it was like the balancing act of, well, does he miss work or do we take the risk and he goes to work but how do we minimise it? But it was a lot of discussion around what happens if we do catch COVID, how do we manage that? Because there's only so much that we can do. Mm. What decisions have you had to make in the past couple of months around managing that risk? I withdrew from university, so I, I'm a full-time student at Victoria University doing a Bachelor of Social Work. And just with how things were playing out over the winter period and me now having quite a few things under my belt, having learned about, you know, how diabetes works for me and my body and all of that, I had to make the decision to withdraw from this semester of study because there was no accessible learning for me. There was no alternative way for me to attend classes and still complete my education for the year. So I've withdrawn from that and that that's really heartbreaking because I so love this program and I so enjoy going to university and meeting people and making new friends and learning so much. How risky would it have been for you to continue your course in your eyes? The risk is that I have to travel for over two hours on public transport to get there, um, which is an enclosed space. And not only that, but it's very difficult to take reasonable health measures on campus. So we're not required to sanitise. We're not required to wear a mask anywhere in the room. There's not necessarily ventilation in every part of campus. It's very difficult to have social distancing in places like stairwells or in elevators. What does your day-to-day actually look like now? How much are you able to leave the house? I tend to stay home 99% of the time. I work from home now, so I am an independent support coordinator and I do all of that from my home office. And I only really leave when I have an appointment, like to see my doctor or if I have to run up the street to grab some groceries. And even then, it's like a milk run. We get all of our groceries delivered most of the time. What about social occasions? People need to see friends and, and family. They do. Um, I don't really do that a whole lot. It's something I'm slowly starting to venture out with doing, um, but it's not something that I do every week. So one of the concerns is obviously other people that you're going to see vaccinated because not everyone is, not everyone has believed in doing that and there are consequences for that. So how comfortable are they with showing you that they had a negative rat test that day? How comfortable is that person making sure that their sanitizer are available and are they going to wear a mask? For a lot of people, these are the concerns. The way that I think about going out now is very different to how I did pre-pandemic or even pre-diagnosis is very different. And that's something I've noticed that it's a different type of mental load for someone with a chronic illness than what previously existed So how does the end of isolation change this risk assessment for you? Are you going to be able to leave the house? I think at some point I've got to make the decision that I'm going to have to or I'm going to live a very, very quiet life and a very lonely one. I I can't go indefinitely doing this. 
you know, being isolated. It's not an enjoyable existence or way to live. Not just for you specifically, what does this announcement mean for people with chronic illness and immunocompromised people broadly? It makes it harder for them to take personal responsibility for their own safety. There's only so much you can do. And this is what we saw happen with the argument about herd immunity. There's only so much you can do if no one else is participating with you. If the rest of the community is not wearing masks, not sanitising hands, not trying to maintain some sort of distance, it doesn't matter how often you wash your hands, you're probably going to catch something. When these the end of these measures were announced, I saw some people, including journalists, say that this is the end of the pandemic. What do you think of that? Do you want to, like, swap places for a day or a week? Here's, here's what I would like people to think about. For the average person who is healthy and able-bodied, maybe it is the end of the pandemic for you. But for people who have health conditions, if you've had cancer, if you've had, if, you've, if you're diabetic, and there are 2 million Australians with diabetes of some description, um, if you've had any of these health issues, it's not the end. That was Ashley Cooper and earlier epidemiologist Professor Catherine Bennett. Thanks to them for their time. You can read more of The Guardian's coverage of the pandemic at theguardian.com and we've linked Catherine Bennett's latest analysis titled Ending Mandatory Isolation Does Not Mean COVID Is Over But We Need To Move Beyond Short-Term Fixes on the Full Story page. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Rafka Tuma and Karishma Luthria. Sound design and mixing by Tim Jenkins. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassy and me, Laura Mefiotes. Okay, catch you next time.